bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, September 27, 2016. Thirty years ago today, the Senate approved the Tax Reform Act of 1986, one of the biggest overhauls of the tax code. And one of the major provisions, of course, was the creation of the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. And President Ronald Reagan signed the bill into law 25 days later, on October 22nd. Now, I should also mention that tomorrow marks the 22nd anniversary of Novogratz's first affordable housing conference. The event was in San Francisco and started September 28, 1994. Now, turning to our podcast news, in our general section today, I'll discuss a new bill that would provide tax relief to flood victims in Louisiana. The bill would increase the state's low-income housing tax allocation, create an additional allocation of new markets tax credits, and enhance the availability of private activity taxes and bonds. In our low-income housing tax credit section, I'll discuss a bill that would create the middle-income version of the low-income housing tax credit. Appropriately, their program would be called the Middle-Income Housing Tax Credit. And after that, I'll share an update on a Texas fair housing case that could change how state agencies across the country allocate low-income housing tax credits. Then, I'll have a brief reminder of upcoming HUD deadlines for closing mixed finance transactions before the end of the year. After that, I'll talk about a new progress report from HUD on its Rental Assistance Demonstration, or RAD, program. Then, I'll round out the housing section with state news from Nebraska, where the state allocating agency said it would delay publishing proposed rules for its state low-income housing tax credit. In New Markets Tax Credit News, I'll discuss the CDFI Fund's announcement of the first Capital Magnet Fund awards since 2010. And in other CDFI news, I'll congratulate Lisa Jones of the CDFI Fund, who is honored with a Civic Service Award for her work to start the CDFI Bond Guarantee Program. In our Historic Tax Credit section, I'll talk about the launch of the Novogratic Historic Tax Credit Mapping Tool and how it can help Historic Tax Credit developers and investors plan future projects. And I'll close out with Renewable Energy Tax Credit news we'll touch on a letter submitted to Congress by more than 50 businesses that are pushing for certain renewable energy tax extenders this year. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, a bill was introduced in Congress last week that would provide tax relief to this year's flood and storm victims in Louisiana. Now, among many things, the bill would increase Louisiana's state allocation of low-income housing tax credits for calendar years 2017 through 2019. Under the bill, the state of Louisiana would have an additional $18 multiplied by the population in the storm and flood disaster area of low-income housing tax credits to allocate. Furthermore, the low-income housing tax credit ceiling for Louisiana in calendar year 2017 would be increased by $3.5 million. Now, in addition to the special disaster allocation increase, the bill would designate the storm and flood disaster area as a difficult development area. And for calendar years 2017 through 2019, non-metropolitan disaster areas would be eligible to use the greater 
of national non-metropolitan median gross income or area median gross income for purposes of the income test. Now, the bill would also create an additional allocation of new markets tax credits for disaster areas. The additional allocation would be $300 million for 2016 and 2017 and $400 million for 2018. The legislation would enhance the availability of taxes and productivity bonds for those disaster areas as well. Louisiana would have a bond designation cap of $2,500 multiplied by the population affected by the disaster area. The bill also includes various relaxed requirements for the Special Disaster Bond Authority. Now, all of these provisions are meant to help disaster victims in Louisiana rebuild and recover. Supporters of the bill compare it to the Gulf Opportunity Zone Act of 2005, which I'm sure many of our listeners will remember. Also known as the Go Zone Act, the bill was enacted to help communities recover from Hurricanes Katrina, Rita, and Wilma. And like the new bill, the Go Zone Act also provided increases in low-income housing tax credits, new markets tax credits, and tax-exempt private activity bonds. The bill is also similar to the National Disaster Tax Relief Act of 2015, which would provide disaster allocations of low-income housing tax credits and new markets tax credits as well as an increased historic tax rate percentage and tax and bond relief for federally declared disaster areas from 2012 to 2015. In this way, the new bill has the same approach to disaster recovery. That is, encourage private investment in rebuilding housing and communities. This new bill was introduced by Representative Charles Bustani, a Republican who is also the House Ways and Means Tax Policy Subcommittee Chairman. The bill is called the Louisiana Flood and Storm Devastation Tax Relief Act of 2016, and it's House Bill 6137. Now, we're going to have more details about the bill on our website and notes from the Novogratic blog. Simply go to www.novoco.com. In affordable housing news, last week, Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon introduced a bill to create a middle-income housing tax credit. This bill is inspired and modeled after the low-income housing tax credit. The legislation would create a credit for the development of rental homes affordable for families with incomes at or below 100% of the area median gross income, or AMGI. The middle-income housing tax credit would complement the low-income housing tax credit, which, as you know, is used to fund housing for residents earning less than 60% of the area median gross income. There are several ways in which they would work together. One is that the state allocating agencies would oversee the program like they do the low-income housing tax credit program. Also, it would be possible for property to have low-income and middle-income housing tax credit assistance. Furthermore, all unused middle-income housing tax credit dollars would be returned to a state's existing pool of funding for the low-income housing tax credit. Just like the low-income housing tax credit, the bill calls for the federal government to allocate middle-income housing tax credits based on population with a 2017 allocation of $1 per capita and a $1.14 million small state minimum, adjusted annually thereafter for inflation. For comparison, the low-income housing tax allocation per capita this year is $2.35, and the small state minimum is $2.69 million. In other words, the middle-income housing tax credit would have less than half the funding of the low-income housing tax credit. The middle-income housing tax credit would have a 15-year credit claiming and compliance period, with a credit equal to 50% of the present value over that period of qualified costs. For comparison, as you may recall, the long housing tax credit is worth either 70 or 30% in present value terms over 10 years 
with a 15-year compliance period. Also, similar to the 9% minimum rate for the low-income housing tax credit, the middle-income housing tax credit would have a minimum 5% rate per year. To be eligible, the property would have to provide at least 60% of its units to incomes with 100% or less of the AMGI, and the rent couldn't exceed 30% of AMGI. Like the low-income housing tax credit, this would require affordability for an additional 15 years after the compliance period. The legislation also includes a Sense of the Senate resolution urging the passage of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act, which would increase the annual low-income housing tax allocation by 50% over five years. My colleague, Peter Lawrence, in our Washington office, says that some affordable housing stakeholders have been highlighting the need for this type of credit for a long time. They recognize that there is a shortage of affordable rental housing for workers, such as teachers, policemen, firefighters, nurses, and others, who make slightly more than the limits for low-income housing tax credit developments. However, others are concerned that the bill may compete with the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act for tax revenue, or that housing financed by the bill would compete with market rate units. Now, Peter says that while this bill is very unlikely to advance in this session of the Congress, the fact that Democrats may take over the Senate in November's elections, making Senator Ron Wyden chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, means that this bill could get serious consideration next year. You can read Senator Wyden's bill and summaries at www.taxcredithousing.com. Now, the bill is called the Middle Income Housing Tax Credit Act of 2016, and it's Senate Bill 3384. Next, I have an update to a fair housing lawsuit that has been of great interest to the low-income housing tax credit community for going on eight years. I'm talking, of course, about Inclusive Communities Project versus the Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs. Inclusive Community Project, or ICP, brought the lawsuit against the Texas Housing Agency back in 2008. ICP claimed that the state's policies of allocating low-income housing tax credits had a disparate impact that violated the Fair Housing Act. Disparate impact is when a policy appears to be neutral but has a discriminatory effect on a protected class. In this case, ICP claimed that minority households did not have the necessary extent of opportunity to move to predominantly white neighborhoods because of the state agency's tax allocation policies. Over the years, the fair housing case has gone back and forth. Lower courts originally ruled in favor of ICP. Then, the Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs appealed the case to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court did not decide the case. However, it did rule that disparate impact could be used to prove discrimination. The case then went back to the district court. And in August, the district court ruled in favor of the state agency and said that ICP did not prove disparate impact, and the case was dismissed. Not surprisingly, Inclusive Communities Project last week appealed the decision. And so, the saga continues. As I mentioned, the foreboding community is watching this case very closely. The ultimate outcome could change how state housing agencies across the country allocate low-income housing tax credits. To learn more about the case, check out my notes from Novogratic blog. In other affordable housing news, HUD last week issued a memo to public housing agency directors announcing due dates for closing mixed finance transactions before the end of the year. Anyone intending to close a mixed finance transaction by December 31 should remember two deadlines. First of all, Development proposals are due to HUD by November 7th. Then, evidentiary documents are due by November 14th. Really, though, the sooner the better. 
HUD recommends making every effort to close before December 21st. After that date and until December 30th, there will be limited staff in the HUD office to process documents. Now, if you need any special assistance with your proposal, please contact my partner, Susan Wilson, in our Austin, Texas office. And while we're on the topic of HUD, the agency last week released its first comprehensive assessment of the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program, or RAD. This review covered a period from the start of RAD in 2012 until October 2015. During that time, RAD brought in $2.5 billion in financing for repairs and renovations to more than 19,000 public housing apartments. The report showed that for every $1 of public money invested, private investors added $9. As you remember, the RAD program was approved by Congress in 2012 to help public housing agencies convert their properties to project-based Section 8 contracts. Two years earlier, HUD estimated that there was a backlog of $26 billion in capital needs for the nation's 1.1 million public housing units. HUD estimated that that total would grow by $3.4 billion each year. RAD allows public housing agencies, or PHAs, to leverage private capital to finance rehabilitation and replacement of their units. The report concluded that RAD projects are more likely to have higher per-unit operating subsidies and lower per-unit expenses, which increases the net operating income for a property. HUD reports in the assessment that low-income housing tax credits provided nearly 40% of the funds for RAD projects, and an additional 16% of funding came from seller or take-back financing, which is related to tax credits. HUD also found that the program has been especially effective in high-cost cities that have larger public housing agencies. In fact, it's most popular with PHAs that have 250 units or more of public housing. The report concluded that RAD appears to put the properties on a stronger, long-term financial trajectory. Based on these findings, HUD called for Congress to lift its cap of 185,000 units that can participate in the RAD program. HUD had already reached the cap, and there is a waiting list. That 185,000 unit total, of course, was an increase from the original cap of only 60,000 units. This report echoes what many in the affordable housing world have been saying, that the program is achieving its goals and is worthy of expansion. Now, a second report on RAD, which will examine how the program affects the physical and financial condition of properties and how residents are affected, is expected by December of 2018. You can read HUD's initial report at www.hudresourcecenter.com. In state news, the Nebraska Investment Finance Authority recently announced that it will delay the process and publication of proposed rules for its state and low-income housing tax credit. The state agency is delaying because there are still several administrative matters, policy questions, and internal management protocols that need to be reviewed or clarified. This announcement from the state agency said that the process to review and clarify those issues could take 30 to 60 days. Only then will the state post the proposed rules. Nebraska passed the state affordable housing tax credit during this year's session. The state credit will be equal to the amount of a development's federal low-income housing tax credit award. The state tax credit is for six years. The Nebraska credit is available for developments placed in service after January 1, 2018. Again, this recent announcement just clarified that the state agency will wait before it posts its proposed rules later this year. There simply is a delay until the other related issues are settled. Now, the announcement did clarify that the development of the 2017 Qualified Allocation Plan for the federal low-income housing tax credit is underway and on schedule. In community development news, 
The City of Fife Fund announced last week that it's awarded nearly $91.5 million in grants for the development of affordable housing and community facilities in low-income communities. These awards were made through the Capital Magnet Fund, a fund which was created by the Housing and Economic Recovery Act of 2008. Last week's awards were the first since the year 2010. That, of course, was when the program was suspended due to concerns about the fiscal solvency of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Fannie and Freddie were supposed to set aside funds for the Capital Magnet Fund. This suspension ended in 2014 when the Federal Housing Finance Agency Director, Mel Watt, instructed Fannie and Freddie to begin setting aside funds for both the Capital Magnet Fund and the Housing Trust Fund. Last week's Capital Magnet Fund awards will support financing for the preservation, rehabilitation, development, or purchase of affordable housing for low-income communities. Funding can also go to related economic development and community service facilities. The CDFI says that that includes such things as daycare centers, workforce development centers, and healthcare clinics. The 32 awardees collectively serve 37 states plus the District of Columbia. The awardees were selected after a competitive review of applications from 125 organizations. Now, the Capital Magnet Fund regulations require recipients to leverage $10 of housing and economic development investment for every $1 of federal funds. This means that last week's awards will support more than $900 million in investment in low-income communities. The only previous Capital Magnet Fund awards back in 2010 featured $80 million awarded to 23 organizations. Those awards created nearly 10,000 affordable homes and 15 economic development projects. Now you can see the list of this year's awardees in the Capital Magnet Fund Award Book. This book is available at www.newmarketscredits.com. In other news, I would like to congratulate Lisa Jones of the CDFI Fund. Lisa is one of eight winners of the Samuel J. Hyman Service to America Medals Award. They're also called the Sammies. She was honored for her work to launch the CDFI Bond Guarantee Program. Winners were awarded last week at a ceremony in Washington, D.C. The Sammies are one of the most prestigious awards honoring our nation's civil servants, and they're presented by the nonprofit Partnership for Public Service. Now, the Small Business Jobs Act of 2010 established the CDFI Bond Guarantee Program, a program intended to provide low-cost, long-term capital to underserved communities. The program that Lisa built is transforming how the capital markets and investors look at making investments in low-income, underserved communities. Under the CDFI Bond Guarantee Program, the Treasury guarantees 30-year bonds that qualified issuers then make available to CDFIs. Since 2013, the bond program has made available more than $850 million in loans to low-income communities. And these investments finance the development of small businesses, affordable rental housing, and more. To learn more about the CFI Bond Guarantee Program, please go to www.newmarketscredits.com. In historic preservation news, I'm pleased to share with you a great new resource for historic tax credit practitioners. It's the Novogratic Historic Tax Credit Mapping Tool. Our new free historic tax credit mapping tool allows users to search and browse federal historic tax credit investments from 2001 through the year 2015. It's an inter interactive map that includes information on more than 12,000 properties, sourced from Part 3 data from the National Park Service. The tool allows users to view information about the historic tax credit properties 
by congressional district, state, and various eligibility criteria. Now, data available about each property include the total project costs, the date of the Part 3 approval, the property's address, as well as a project description. Now, if you're interested, you can also layer in eligibility criteria, such as 2016, low-income housing tax credit, qualified census tracts, and difficult development areas, new markets tax credit eligible census tracts, and also certain Community Reinvestment Act eligibility criteria. Now, the historic tax credit mapping tool is a great tool for investors, developers, advocates, and others. And in addition to gathering information, you can use it to demonstrate to lawmakers and policymakers how the historic tax credit has improved their communities. You can see this new tool at www.historictaxcredits.com. In renewable energy tax credit news, I'd like to talk about a letter that urges Congress to pass a multi-year extension of several tax provisions that are set to expire at the end of 2016. This letter was drafted by more than 50 business groups with organizations involved in energy, agriculture, transportation, and other sectors. As you know, Congress last year extended wind and solar investment and production tax credits for five years. But Congress did not address other technologies that contribute to the country's power mix, including biomass, geothermal, hydro, and others. The letter says that these tax provisions are vital to the U.S. economy and support thousands of jobs nationwide. The groups argue that allowing these tax provisions to lapse would increase taxes on the entities that create jobs and economic growth. The letter's main argument for extending these incentives is one that industry participants are well aware of. The on-again, off-again credit eligibility causes uncertainty and makes it difficult for businesses to make important tax planning decisions. Now, the options for these tax extenders to be addressed during this Congress are fairly limited. Now, for one thing, Congress members are busy working on setting appropriations levels for most of the 2017 federal fiscal year. And another reason why extenders may face difficulty in being addressed soon is that House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Kevin Brady is against using a year-end omnibus bill as a vehicle for tax extenders. Brady said that tax extenders need to be part of a bigger tax overhaul conversation next year. Now, I'll keep you posted on any tax extender updates. And in the meantime, you can read the business group's letter at www.energytaxcredits.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. But just a reminder, there is still time to sign up for the Novogratic webinar entitled From Allocation to Form 8609. This webinar addresses requirements that low-income housing tax credit awardees need to satisfy during the time between receiving the tax credit award and submitting their Form 8609 the form that allows them to claim the tax credits on their partnership tax returns. This webinar is intended for low-income housing tax credit property owners, developers, asset managers, syndicators, and attorneys. The webinar can also be a useful resource for anyone else interested in making sure that a property generates the full amount of tax credits it was awarded. The webinar will be Friday, October 7th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. You can register at www.novaco.com. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.